They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ friendly to sports. Vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming. Watching the sun bake All of those tourists covered with oil Strumming my six string On my front porch swing Smell those shrimp
Lately I've been thinking that I could leave this town I'd Cut back on my drinking, stop this running round Playing songs till after midnight, staying up till dawn There's something in the dust and wind that keeps me hanging on And I never thought I'd live to see the day I'd say goodbye I ain't crying, that's West Texas in my eye. I'll be your blue-eyed bandit if you'll be my renegade I count a thousand tumbleweeds roll by me every day I like to grow a rose and stow it in that desert sage like a message in a bottle floating down the open plains Where the Yano Estacado rises up to meet the sky I ain't crying, that's West Texas in my eye I've seen the thunderheads descend and rip into the ground the twisted hand of heaven spreading terror all around Sending farmers into deeper debt and ranchers to the grave Where towers mark the end of time with slowly spinning blades Till the water table falls below the reach of humankind I ain't crying, that's West Texas in my eyes been thinking I could leave this town cut back on my drinking and stop this running around playing songs till after midnight and staying up till dawn but there's something in the dust and wind that keeps me hanging on and I never thought I'd live to see the day I said I ain't crying, that's West Texas in my eye I ain't crying, that's West Texas in my eye
the love are hanging on me, push and shove. Possession is the motivation that is hanging up the goddamn nation. Looks like we always end up in a rut. Everybody now trying to make it real compared to what? Slaughterhouses are killing hogs. Twisted children are killing frogs. Poor dumb rednecks rolling logs. Tired old ladies kissing dogs. I hate the human love of that stinking mud. I can't use it. Trying to make it real compared to what? Come on, baby. He's got his war. Folks don't know just what it's for. Nobody gives us a rhyme or reason. Have one doubt, they call it treason. We're chicken feathers all the way out one day. God damn it, trying to make it real compared to what? On Sunday, sleeping not trying to duck the wrath of God. Preachers filling us with fright. They all trying to teach us what they think is right. They really got to be some kind of nut. I can't use it. I'm trying to make it real compared to what.
and where's that honey? Where's my God and where's my money? Unreal values, a crass distortion. Unwed mothers need a portion. Kind of brings to my old young King Tut. He did it now, trying to make it real compared to what? Good morning, everybody. You are tuned to Mutiny Radio. My name is Joan Morgan, a.k.a. The Bee, bringing you your Saturday morning hit of labor history, labor opinion, labor commentary, in some cases, Labor advice, we're going to look into that today. This is Labor and Love Radio, where we tell you how it is. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, where you work, you're on the menu. Never, never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. And when I say labor, I mean you. We're going to look at some of our credos in a minute, but let's just introduce that last set. We ended up there with Les McCann. Song that is never out of date. <laughs> 
Compared to what? Trying to make it real compared to what? And before that, we had West Texas in my eye. Beautiful song sort of calling, following the angst of country people, country and western people, workers, just like urban people, workers, looking into the future, looking into what's happening in their lives, what's going on and what's controlling it. And before that, we had a beloved song by Jimmy Buffett, the late Jimmy Buffett from uh, Mississippi. Sort of founded his own school of music, the uh, alcoholic, alcoholic margarita songs, I guess something like that. And um, the song is it's one that leads you to picture a harbor somewhere in the Caribbean. People just hanging out, relaxing, drinking, talking, talking. So what do we got for you today? We're going to talk about a great Chicano labor of Barcelona. Try to see what Radio Labor has for us. Something about artificial intelligence. We're going to have a discussion with labor historian Kim Kelly, whose book is called Fight Like Hell. A little bit more on Oliver Anthony, who's in that country in western Conway. Call it country in western protest, I guess. Marie Aki, I bet you never heard of her. A crusading woman, a doctor who fought for the rights of gay people and rights of women in general. And coming right up, Fran Desher, Threshers, telling how Hollywood strikes. Right now, let's take a look at our credos. What do we got? Credos. This is the one I always lead off with because this is what connects us. For some people, it really matters if there's social justice or not. It really matters if the state is cracking down on throwing some of us into the garbage pit. 
Humanity is outraged in me and with me. We must not dissimulate nor try to forget this indignation, which is one of the most passionate forms of love. George Sand, French writer, woman who gave herself the name George so she could publish her work. And there's a shooting, no matter how many shootings there are. And there's gun battles, mass killing. Be outraged. There's a reason these things happen. There are people who are making decisions every day to allow things like this to happen. And we must never.
River Mary, how many venues? We've got nine venues, sir. And you, boy, what's your name? Very good. And finally, Eleven Fingers Sally. What about the tickets? You can find all of your tickets on Eventbrite, sir. Check out www.mutinyradio.fm. What is that? I don't know what a website is. I'm a pirate. <laughs> <laughs> But f- f- quick to the festival! All oh, sails ahead! Uh, Pirate noises! Okay, let's get back to our interview with Kitty Kelly, Kim Kelly, labor historian. Fourth, um, um, talking about organizing. conversation we taped last year with Kim Kelly upon the release of her book, Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. We'll be discussing everything from organizing in World War II shipyards to madams marching for sex worker rights in 19th century San Francisco. It's all next, after the news. Uh, You're listening to the 7M Headlines. I'm Scott Baba. Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is seeking to persuade a Russian president, Vladimir Putin, to revive an agreement that allowed Ukraine to export grain and other commodities from three Black Sea ports despite the war with Russia. Putin in July refused to extend the agreement, which was brokered by Turkey and the United Nations a year earlier. It is seen as vital for global food supplies, especially in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. Ukraine and Russia are major suppliers of wheat, barley, sunflower oil, and other goods that developing nations rely on. Erdogan said the grain deal was the headline issue as the day-long talks between the two leaders in Russia's Black Sea resort of Sochi. 
Meanwhile, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is making changes to the country's leadership as Ukraine's critical counteroffensive continues in the south. Ali Barrett reports. Uh, and Chinese President Xi Jinping is apparently skipping this week's group of 20 summit G20 summit in India as bilateral relations between China and other G20 nations remain when the comedy is the cheapest happy hour the most free two hours of hour long comedy SF. Kidnappings and blackmail have become a part of daily life, particularly in the banana shipping port of Guayaquil. An unusual late summer storm turned the week-long Burning Man countercultural festival into a sloppy mess, with tens of thousands of partygoers stuck in foot-deep mud and with no working toilets in the northern Nevada desert. The annual gathering in the Black Rock Desert north of Reno attracts nearly 80,000 artists, musicians, and activists, and for a mix of wilderness camping and avant-garde performances. According to the National Weather Service, higher. Over 25 years, the Red Wolf began in the United States. Uh, it is a holiday tied to a much more radical organizing tradition that the United States has tolerated. Uh, so it has been more or less obliterated by officialdom and replaced with this holiday, which is mostly celebrated with barbecues. In any case, uh, I hope you have lovely plans for today if you get to take it off as a holiday. Storm, a public event that was meant to precipitate a crackdown on their business. <laughs> Yeah, that was a heck of a day. I think, ironically, it was set on Valentine's Day. There are these two madams who reached out to this very uh, conservative, uh, pious, sanctimonious preacher, a reverend named Paul Smith, who is a pastor of the Central Methodist Church. And he was very, very, very anti-sex work. He's very offended at the sight of women dancing, and he thought that these workers would corrupt his flock on their way to and from church. And, you know... And at that point, some of those members of the flock were not really that worried about being corrupted. They were having a great time. But it was part of this whole progressive era, like panic around morality and vice and the evils of sex work, as some people decided uh, existed. And he was, there's a lot of, uh, it was at a moment where the city was going to basically sweep out uh, this area called the Barbary Coast, which is a red light district where a lot of sex workers worked and lived. And they were going to go in there and evict everybody thought that would, that would accomplish or what, how that would help vulnerable people, but they decided they wanted to do that. And obviously sex workers were not happy about this, and they started organizing. And a couple of madams basically led this protest and stormed this meeting and took the pulpit and started speaking, and other sex workers spoke out. And basically the message was like, 
leave us alone. <laughs> like, if you want to do something about what you see as the evil of sex work, like improve our working conditions, make it easier for people to switch careers if they want. Like, we are poor, we are vulnerable, we are marginalized. We might not have necessarily decided to follow this line of work if we had other options, but you cracking down on us, you evicting us, you trying to criminalize us, that's not helping. <laughs> like, essentially what sex workers have been saying forever like please just leave us alone and let us figure out what we need and get out of our way and that was happening in 1917 and it was really significant like there was um like uh, sex workers in the area like commemorate that because that's important history and um it was really cool to find that because just that image of sex workers coming to this church full of people determined to you know stomp on them and taking the pulpit and saying okay I was struck by the, the quotes you assembled from Reggie Gamble and Maud Spencer and, and the women they turned out on that day, um, that they had such a sophisticated narrative of the choices that society imposes on women who need to earn money from their labor to survive. Mm, there's one really good quote that just, it just sums up so many things, right? She said, um... One of the girls told me that her brother, a Methodist minister, when she applied for help to him, only told her to trust in God. You can't trust in God when shoes are $10 a pair and wages are $6 a week. And we could say the same thing right now, you know? Like, it's age-old problems, age-old issues, and it seems like the people in power have been trying to use the same blunt force tactics to crack down on what they see as a problem since the 1900s. So that was like, uh, on the surface of it, a failed organizing effort. Uh, the city's crackdown moved ahead, got cleaned out, uh, starting with a crackdown on Reggie Gamble's brothel. Uh, but you put it in kind of a long lineage of sex worker organizing and do something that had never really occurred to me before. You frame the Stonewall riots as partly about worker organizing, uh, not just LGBT rights. Yeah. I mean, because if you think about it, the people, a lot of the people who were involved in that activism were also engaged in survival sex work. And, you know, a sex worker is a worker. A queer person who is engaging in sex work is a worker. Like, it's, it's also interconnected. I mean, Marsha P. Johnson and uh, Marsha P. Johnson and uh, Miss Major Griffin Gacy, Gracie, uh, two black trans women who were part of that effort, who were instrumental, who are icons in LGBTQ history, but they were also occasionally worked in sex work and they used the money from uh, their labor to take care of other sex workers and other queer and trans people and to fund a halfway house and to take care of their community. And that's, that's labor organizing, that's mutual aid. Like it is very interconnected. And I think that uh, people in the labor movement who maybe don't see those connections would really gain a lot from looking a little bit deeper and seeing you know, what kind of work what kind of labor that some of these icons that we know about were engaged in and see how how those things intersect because everything really is connected because most people either have a job or have had a job or will have a job and there's always that labor aspect to any story especially in terms of social justice movements and movements towards liberation i want to move to um another piece of bay area history you tell here which is the the formation of the international brotherhood of sleeping car porters the, the first like black union admitted to the AFL-CIO. Yes. I think it often just gets glossed as the story of the creation of a union. But the, the founder, A. Philip Randolph, 
is a socialist. He winds up backing the March on Washington, close collaborator in the civil rights struggle, um, and, and has like a close relationship with Bayard Rustin, who was like the behind the scenes strategist credited with a lot of the innovative organizing successes uh, of the civil rights movement in the 60s. Right, because I mean, this these folks were not, um, they weren't living in different eras, right? Like when A. Philip Randolph was first getting involved in organizing the Poland Porters, he was a younger man. And during the civil rights movement, he had become sort of this elder, this respected, uh, been around the block kind of guy with a lot of experience. Baird Rustin also had a ton of experience in labor. And he had, he was the one who really knew how to organize. He understood the, uh, the tactics of nonviolence. He was the person that everybody involved in, uh, in that organizing committee, in that, you know, in that cadre, like, okay, he's the one that's going to be able to pull this off. Like, we need Baird. Obviously, he's the guy. But there's also this tension that, you know, Baird as an out gay man in the 60s, in this context, there were some people, even people he was working with, who didn't want to ask him to be involved, who didn't think that him being who he was was going to be an asset and it might actually damage their cause because of homophobia, because of bigotry, because of prejudice. And I believe um, Martin Luther King Jr. was one of the people that stuck up for him and said, you know what, like, he's, we can't do this without him. Like, we need to to give Bear the resources he needs and let him do his thing. And thankfully, that's what happened. And that's how the March for, uh, March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom became such a massive success because Baird Rustin knew what he was doing. And it just happened to be that he was living in a time when his identity made it much more difficult and fraught for other people, even people that were his comrades in the struggle for racial justice, for civil rights. It made it difficult for them to fully accept him. And I think that might be one of the reasons he isn't quite as well-known as he should be. And it's one of the reasons I was excited to write about him a whole bunch in my book. I think uh, a lot of civil rights history gets glossed as Martin Luther King turns to supporting black organized labor late in his life um, with the sanitation strikes. But what this really highlights is how much his civil rights movement was building from the organizational muscle and the organizing chops of people who'd organized first as labor. Yeah. I mean, even Dorothy Lee Bolden, who I think she's, well, she should be at the very least, uh, known as, you know, a civil rights icon. She got her start organizing domestic workers in Atlanta. She grew up as a domestic worker. She was part of that community, part of that workforce. And she organized the National Domestic Workers Union. And she organized about, at its peak, I think there are 10,000 uh, black women domestic workers who are part of this organization, who are paying dues, who are receiving services, who are working to professionalize their labor. And Dorothy Lee Bolden, she was neighbors with Dr. Luth, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Like he encouraged her to get involved in this organizing. It was all so interconnected in ways that were really fun to explore. And um, yeah, it's just a, a piece of labor history and a piece of civil rights history that it was really interesting to draw out a little bit and show these very explicit parallels and show that, you know, nobody just, uh, no civil rights organizer just sprang fully formed from Zeus's forehead, right? Like, they had to get there somewhere. And for a lot of these folks, it began in labor. What were you trying to accomplish with this book? Why, why did you think the world needed another labor history? I wanted to write a labor book and pull together the stories of workers and events and campaigns and losses and victories that 
are harder to find in the mainstream trade labor histories that you find lying around at Barnes and Noble in the library. I wanted to bring this history out from, you know, wherever it might have been tucked away or forgotten or overlooked and make it accessible and engaging and fun for today's workers to read. I wrote this for the rank and file. I wrote this for folks to read on their break or on the bus or on their commute. I wanted to find a way to help bring this history to life and show workers today that they are part of such a long history, especially workers who you know, have marginalized identities, who maybe don't see themselves in the news reports about you know, white guys in hard hats, who are valid and who are very important. I was raised by those guys. but. I wanted to show that the working class in this country and the labor movement in this country has always been, you know, led by women and queer and trans folks, black and brown and indigenous folks, like disabled workers and, and incarcerated workers, sex workers. It's such a big mosaic of people, of different identities and backgrounds and goals and struggles. And I really wanted to put it all together in a place where someone could pick it up and find themselves within the pages and then hopefully go through the bibliography after. Uh, look up some of the other books that I drew from and the work of other scholars and historians that I used as sources because they've done so much important work digging up and preserving so much of this history. Uh, and keep following the breadcrumbs, keep learning more. Like I wanted to make our labor history, the labor history of the working people in this country seem kind of fun and cool and exciting. And hopefully that's what I've pulled off. So like, like, let's talk a little bit about you. I, um, I, I'm just old enough that when I entered journalism, it seemed like labor reporters were an endangered species mm -hmm. on their way out. I, I remember probably there, there was a point when I was like looking around and taking stock, probably Stephen Greenhouse at the New York Times was like the last person earning a salary full time to cover yeah. organized labor. When you started like making a career for yourself covering labor, how did you start connecting to that history? Who did you have as role models? I came to it in sort of a roundabout way because I spent most of my life and career as a heavy metal journalist, like in the music industry. I only got involved personally in labor because I helped organize my workplace advice, I think about six years ago now. Uh, shout out to the Writers Guild of America East. And I had always been a person who was interested in history and in workers' history, women's history. I was always looking for these stories anyway, just as someone who is interested in consuming and learning from them. But I never thought of myself as a, a worker or someone who could be in a union like everyone I, I was raised by were like my dad it's a construction worker my granddad's a steel worker my grandma's a teacher like it made sense for me that those folks were in unions but I didn't think that I would get a chance to partake because I just I saw myself as someone who just wrote about heavy metal on the internet and when that changed I it kind of changed the framing of the way I saw things and I thought oh cool so maybe I can maybe I'm allowed to write about labor too and I don't have a traditional academic or journalistic background, really. I've kind of just figured it out as I've gone along from reading a ton, uh, whether it's, you know, contemporary journalists or scholars, academics, historians, and talking to people, talking to workers directly. That's where I've learned the most. And uh, that's how I've tried to, to focus my work, just on elevating the voices of the people that know the most. Because workers are the experts. The rest of us are just kind of window dressing, really. And, um, you know, I love Stephen Greenhouse, love Sarah Jaffe. She's an inspiration. Hamilton Nolan, Maximilian Alvarez, and Louis Leon, and 
uh, Lauren Gurley. Like, there are so many people who have been doing this for longer than I have that I'm just, like, in awe of their, their skill and their ability. And I might be, you know, have a little bit of an unorthodox background. I don't have a college degree. I don't have this. I don't have that. But I have so much love and passion for this work. And I do spend a whole lot of time reading and researching and, you know, making sure I know what I'm talking about. So all that to say, I'm just, uh, I guess, crossing fingers and reading books and hoping that I do justice to the workers who trust me with their stories. So when you, like, pack up your notebooks and your camera and run down to Bessemer for the, the final weeks before a union vote, like, what, what history is running through your head? Mm. In Bessemer specifically, uh, I wrote a long piece about this for Vox, but that area, uh, Birmingham and Bessemer, they have a very strong industrial history and a history of unionizing and labor unions. Like, there's um, a specific union called the Mine Mill Union that you can read more about that was integrated and was really militant and pretty progressive, and they had a big, uh, big presence there in decades past, I'll say. But even the Bessemer Amazon warehouse itself, it sits on the former site of a U.S. steel factory. Like, that past is not very far away. Downtown Birmingham, we have uh, a park full of civil rights leader statues and a, a museum dedicated to that struggle. Like, the, there's so much there, and I think that there's an impulse in people that are not maybe connected to the South or connected to the specific histories in these areas that maybe tend to write it off. It's like, oh, Alabama, like those folks vote against their interests, those folks this, those folks that. Those folks have been fighting for their rights and their you know, dignity for work and their rights as workers for centuries. Like this isn't new. It just maybe feels new because not that many people were paying attention before. And now hopefully that's something that was going to change. All right. Kim Kelly, I think that's a, a good note to end on. I want to thank you so much for the book, and thank you for speaking to us about it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Kim Kelly is a labor journalist and a labor organizer. Among other things, she's a columnist for Teen Vogue. Her new book is Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. Interrupted. <clears throat> interview with Kim Kelly, labor journalist, emphasizing in her work, Fight Like Hell, which so you go out and get it, read that book and read some sides of the labor movement that we might not be so familiar with. Here's a piece on Bert Corona. My father stood for three things. Education, service to others, and justice. His lifelong career of political activism has left us with a powerful legacy.
Bert Corona was born in El Paso, Texas in 1918 during the deadly Spanish influenza. Bert's father served as a colonel with a legendary Pancho Villa protecting the rights of Mexico's poor. And when Bert's parents were married, Pancho Villa made a special trip to be there. At an early age, Bert learns that his father was assassinated in Mexico. And a year later, Pancho Villa himself is assassinated. You just had to have known that with all that Mexican revolutionary passion in his father, that my dad would be destined to be some kind of hellraiser himself. While in fifth grade, Mexican-American students were subject to expulsion for questioning their teachers about Mexican history. In protest, they refused to go to school. He was only 10 years old and taking part in probably the first ever student strike. And the school gave in and apologized. The Great Depression made an unforgettable impression on the young mind of Bert Corona. During the Great Depression, people were extremely anti-immigrant, anti-Mexican, because they thought that Mexicans were taking American jobs. As a result, hundreds of thousands of Mexicans were deported, whether they were citizens or not. And I think that this injustice was the catalyst that made my dad devote his life to helping others. After the Great Depression, Bert, on a scholarship, attends the University of Southern California, majoring in law. He was one of only four Mexican-Americans in the USC student body. While attending school, Bert becomes involved with the unions, where he would help to organize workers in low-paying jobs. When he is offered a job as a union organizer for the CIO, he decides to abandon his college and go to work on behalf of low-paid workers. Bert also becomes involved with the Mexican-American movement, which purpose was to improve social, educational, and economic conditions among Mexican-Americans. Many people don't know that the coin phrase Mexican-American came out of this movement. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor during World War II, Bert Corona decides to join the Army Air Corps, eventually becoming a paratrooper and demolition specialist. However, Corona's military career was terminated after the discovery of his past affiliations with unions. In 1942, mass hysteria hit Los Angeles when the body of Jose Diaz was found in the Sleepy Lagoon Reservoir. Twelve men from two rival gangs were convicted of the murder, even though there was no concrete evidence. Bert and a few other community leaders formed the Sleepy Lagoon Defense Committee to exonerate the indicted youths. Two years later, the case was appealed and reversed. By 1948, Bert Corona joins the community service organization which focused on voter registration and getting Mexicans to become politically involved. In 1949, this organization spearheaded the movement that elected the first Mexican-American, Edward Royball, to the LA City Council. In the 50s, Bert Corona becomes a key organizer for the Asociación Nacional Mexico-Americana, one of the most progressive unions at that time who defended the Mexican field workers. In the 60s, Bert Corona is one of the founders of the Mexican-American Political Association, dedicated to political freedom and representation of the Mexican and Hispanic people of the United States. Bert Corona had known Cesar Chavez since the 50s, and when there was talk of organizing a strike against the grape growers, it was Bert and his organization, MAPA, MAPA, 
that helped organize the workers, collected food for the strikers, and worked the picket lines. This strike inspired a nation, and Cesar Chavez referred to Bert Corona as his mentor. Because of Robert Kennedy's commitment to the farm workers' struggle, Bert Corona was deeply involved with his campaign for the presidency. In his last speech, minutes before he was assassinated, Bobby Kennedy said this. I want to thank uh, Cesar Chavez and Bert Corona to also work with him and all of those Mexican-Americans who were such uh, supporters of mine. Another of Bert's accomplishments was La Hermandad Nacional Mexicana, which he helped found. The Hermandad showed Mexicans in the United States how to organize to achieve better working conditions and better housing. Bert Corona's Hermandad proved that undocumented workers could unite and win victories in the courts and in the fields. For 18 years, Bert taught Chicano studies at various colleges and universities. He had a PhD uh, in the streets, uh, not a formal one, but to us a more important one. He knew uh, the plight of the Mexican people, he knew immigration, and he knew what we needed to succeed, and that he uh, not only taught, but I think he also encouraged people to pursue their careers and, uh, and to strive and try to be uh, whatever they desire to be. Bert was not only teaching at universities, but teaching us about injustices outside on the streets. When I was here on that day on August 29, 1970, when the police and sheriff's officers came down and beat up and assaulted uh, a peaceful rally to protest the unequal, uh, unequal dying of Mexican youth in the war in Vietnam. The police began to break in through there in formation with batons and guns. And uh, so the kids were defending themselves with these little sticks that they had the signs on. They just, the police just beat up on the, on the children, on anybody that got in their way. We had priests, we had pastors, we had women, uh, teachers from many of the schools. Consequently, we, we had five people killed that day. Bert Corona fought those who used the term illegal aliens in referring to the undocumented. He is credited with eliminating this term in publications. Bert Corona dedicated his life to fighting injustices for his people. Nobody at that time could organize and mobilize a community to a cause like Bert Corona. Certainly touched my heart is because at the point where probably he was three months before he died, he uh, still at the front of the issues, you know, he never sit down in the back seat. He was in the front fighting along with the unions for immigration reform, for other causes. And even if he was very, very sick, he was in a wheelchair, he stand up and made his points. Bert Corona died of health complications on January 15, 2001, the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr., whom Corona also fought alongside with. And today, two institutions carry his name to honor him. The Bert Corona Leadership Institute promotes civic participation, education, and economic advancement among youth from farm worker and underserved communities. The Bert Corona Charter Middle School prepares low-income students for academic success in high school 
as well as to be responsible and active participants in their community. I remember uh, my dad taking me to many immigrants' rights protests, and I remember watching his humanitarian spirit and his speeches and the way he performed them. And that really influenced me to become an immigration lawyer myself and, you know, just help out the cause of immigrants because I know deep down inside that would have made my dad really proud and happy. When my dad was asked what his message to young people would be, he mentioned three things. The first was being willing to work with a wide variety of people, regardless of differences in personality, organization, or politics. The second was stubbornness in the pursuit of your goals. And the third was knowing what you're committed to. In my dad's view, if a young person developed those three qualities, they could find their niche. They could organize others in collective action and develop themselves as leaders. So somewhere along the line, we will be like, uh, like Europe, where, where people who live in Europe always seem to know two or three or four languages, and they're familiar with the cultures of each other's uh, countries, and they seem to be able to get along well. I think that that's what we've got to strive for. Bert Corona was an activist who dedicated his life to achieving social and economic justice for underserved immigrant communities in California and across the nation. He taught us by example to participate in social change and to be a voiceless. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. 
They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Namaste. Every Monday at 6 p.m., it's Joke Workshop, streaming live on mutinyradio.fm. Lift the veil from your third eye on joke creation and what it takes to be a stand-up comic in the five shakasanas of San Francisco's comedy scene. This all-ages open mic invites comedy. Oh, pre-sign by Venmoing two to five dollars at Mutiny Radio. Join us live for a small and special audience at the Mutiny Radio Studio and Gallery Performance Space, two seven eight one Twenty First Street at Florida Street in the deep, deep, deep mission. Every Monday at six p.m. Does my ponytail look cool? Thank you. Namaste. Tuesday used to be the most unlikely night for fun. But every week at 6 p.m., come to OMG's Tuesday Open Mic. And see comics work out new material for free. For free. They get your Tuesday night party on with two-for-one well drink specials during the 6 to 8 p.m. show. Check out Eventbrite to reserve your free seat every Tuesday, 6 p.m. At OMG on Savory 6th Street. Savory 6th Street. Show up to go up. Hey, kids. It's your pal, Spiderman. <laughs> Sorry, Spiderman. Mortimer Spiderman. But I'm not swinging through the senior facility, best in Mysterio at Boggle, or getting beautifully plowed by the rhino. I'm headed down to Beauty Radio at the corner of 21st and Florida. They got some schlemiels doing the laugh lap. But hey, don't be a schmuck and donate 2 to $5 on... Hold, hold on, what is this? Let me get my glasses. The print's too small. Venmo? That's not real. What is that, Swedish? You knew that, right? This is in San Francisco. I'll drown it on. It's nap time. Weekly comic.
in Close the door I'm not expecting people anymore Hear me grieving Lying on the floor to the night. 